of a question to start with. Those of you, many have been here all day and heard inspiring and visionary and calls to action and information and so forth. Um, what would help you as we get ready to transition from here back out into the, the dance of the freeways and the uh, blue waters of the bay and the Easter evening and so forth? What themes, what concerns? Um, James asked me to come in toward the end and I wasn't sure whether it was um, tired activists who are here like taking a break. <laughs> I've tried too hard and I'm carrying the entire world like Sisyphus and I need to take a little rest. Or whether it's people who are aspiring activists who are actually saying, oh, I think it's about time to get my act together. Um, anyway, themes, topics, anything that you would like. But you can say it and I'll repeat it to start with. Sean will fix that, but any, any, anything that, yes? I will take home the inspiration of our beautiful sisters with us. Ah, you'll take home the sisters. They'd probably be happy to go and visit you at home, too. So you're taking inspiration. Anything, you can take all you want. This is actually the dump. You can leave stuff here, and then what you can take is inspiration and spaciousness and, and, and what else? Despair, how to work with despair, okay? Other themes. I like the joyful responsibility. The joyful possibility. Joyful responsibility. Responsibility. Oh my heavens, that joyful responsibility. Oh yeah, I remember that, parenting. Okay. <laughs> Reaching people. Reaching people. I was going to say, probably along the same lines, how to sort of mindfully converse with people who may not um, be quite, uh, have the same perspective as we do on some of these What crises. the Dalai Lama calls his friends the enemy, right? It's very interesting. He doesn't say my friends, he says my friends the enemy that I talk to. Including yes. each other. Including each other, yes. How do we talk to one another? Yeah. Slightly on similar lines to despair, but the anger. Anger, how to deal with anger. Thank you. Yes, please. And, and all the issues um, around, uh, around the animal world and all the you know, sentient beings or you know, environmental all issues. All the many, many other sentient beings. That are being beings. affected by everything. You so do. deeply, the animal world yes. and the other sentient beings. Thank you. And the grief around that and concern. Uh, yeah. Grief. Grief. Despair and grief. Okay. Um, one more, any more? Yeah. Anger and conflict. Anger and conflict uh, with about all this stuff or, or the people you live with or whatever. Okay, it's okay. <laughs> conflict. Oh, and corporations. Oh, yeah. Who are people, of course. They're the people you live with, I'm sorry to say. Um, all right, well, I, I will try to weave these in, in part to what I say and perhaps into the meditation that we do together and then the setting of in, intentions. Um, but somehow I, I feel like I want to start on a different note and note. I loved sitting here with Wes and Kevin um, and turning despair and, and concern and uh, community into art um, is critical. Um, Wes went to interview Gary Snyder, one of the greatest living environmentalists, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning poet, Earth household, back in the 50s when people hadn't even really thought very much in an environmental way and said, all right, you, now you're in your mid-80s and you see the seas rising and the extinction of species and the global climate weirding and all these kinds of things that you've spoken out about. And what advice do you have for us at this time? And he said, 
don't feel guilty. It's an amazing three words, don't feel guilty. He said, if you're going to save it, save it because you love it. If you go out because you're angry or you go out because you're bitter or you go out to fight or something, he said, it's not going to help you and it's actually not going to help the world. That the world needs this transformation of consciousness we've been talking about and it really has to come out of love. It's the only power that's going to make a difference. I mean, if you reflect on Gary's line and his words and what it actually means, um, another language is that what's going to save the world or serve the world is your tenderness and your care. Um, because that's what it's asking for and that's what any kid always asks for. It's your mother, but it's also your child. And um, This is um, a poem from Gabriela Mistral. And Gabriela Mistral, Chilean, um, who took her name from the winds and I think won the Nobel Prize in Poetry in 1945 or something like that. She met, she was a very harsh critic of other people's poetry in certain ways. She had very high standards, let's say that. Um, but then one 16-year-old boy came up to her one day and handed her a sheaf of poems and she read them and she looked back and she said, Pablo, you're a real poet, keep writing. And so she was the inspiration for Pablo Neruda. You are a poet. A woman is singing in the valley, the shadow falling blot her out, but her song spreads far across the fields. Her heart is broken, like the jar she dropped this afternoon among the pebbles in the brook. And as she sings, the hidden wound sharpens on the thread of her song and becomes thin and hard, and her voice in modulations dampens with blood. In the fields, the other voices die with the dying day, and a moment ago the song of the last slowpoke bird stopped. But her deathless heart, alive with grief, gathers all the silent voices into her own, sharp now yet very sweet. Does she sing for a husband who looks at her silently in the dark, or for a child whom her song caresses? Or does she sing for her own heart, more helpless than a babe at nightfall? Night grows maternal before this song that goes to meet it. The stars with a sweetness that is human are beginning to come out. The sky full of stars becomes human and understands the sorrows of this world. And her song, as pure as water filled with light, cleanses the plain and rinses the mean air of day in which men hate. And from the throat of the woman who keeps on singing, day rises nobly, evaporating toward the stars. And so it's a song of tears and beauty and connection with the turning of the earth. And if you were to take the information, the 360 and the 410 and the 420 happens to be today, and all the other information and global and corporate and climate and scientific, um, somehow you have to find a way to carry it in your heart and in your body and in your being and do it out of love. Now the things that help that are to realize that somehow you're not alone. And I don't mean that in the, oh yes, we have a big movement kind of, you're not alone. But in something so much more mysterious um, and wonderful than that. Mm. My friend Dina Metzger, who's a great activist and poet, one of her lines, give me everything mangled and bruised and I will make a light of it to make you weep, and we will have rain, and we will begin again. To take the worst of things. So she's traveled around the world visiting shamans, and healers, and sages, and wise women, and all kinds of cultures, to sit in council together to say, what do we do at this difficult, if not dark, time? And she said, my dream had always been to not only sit in council with the humans, but with the non-humans. So she was in Zimbabwe and Botswana sitting with the Angangas, the shamans there, 
and talked about her dream. And they said, oh, yeah. She said, I'd love to sit in council with the elephants. So they got a big flatbed truck, and they drove down to the Okavanga to a watering hole near where there were herds of elephants. And they parked the truck, and they sat in a circle in the back of the truck for about half an hour making prayers and sitting peacefully and envisioning their connection with all of life, which is true, which we have. And then a very large, they are all large, aren't they? But this was a particularly big elephant, female, walked down from the hills to the truck where they were seated in, seated in a circle, stuck his head in the circle, her, his eye four feet from her, as she said, and stood there with them for 20 minutes without moving while they were all there, then nodded and walked off. Said, okay, that was pretty wild, all right. They sat there, made prayers, thanked the elephant and so forth, turned the truck around, they were getting ready to go, and they noticed that the elephant had gone up over the hill and now came back with 15 or 20 other elephants, and they all lined, the, it was a sort of a dry riverbed that had a two-track, you know, jeep road. They lined the road as if to acknowledge those who had come to listen and sit with them as they all exited. She said, and I don't know exactly what it means, but I do know that it means that we're not alone that we're not alone. So I was in Hawaii, and I'm, I'm just going to tell some stories now, and then we'll do some meditation or other, whatever. Um, I was in Hawaii, and um, I met uh, one of my heroes, uh, a guy named Nainoa Thompson. How many people have ever heard of Nainoa Thompson? Maybe one or two people in the room. Okay, this that's good. This is a treat, then, I get to tell you. So... Um, the Pacific Islands were populated by the Polynesians, whose, if you, they do the DNA and so forth, whose genetic tree, tree, tree or stream takes them back to the islanders of the Philippines and Borneo and of Southeast Asia and so forth. Um, and um, the Polynesians and the Hawaiians and so forth, all knew that they had these great voyaging canoes. In the old days, there were still pictures and paintings of them. And, and um, they navigated the, half the earth covered with water, which is the Pacific Ocean, so that when Captain Cook, who was arguably the finest navigator in the Royal Navy of England, went to the South Pacific, to the far islands, he met some of the master navigators there, and said, so tell me about what's here in the South Pacific. They cleared the sand and put 120 stones on it, which were the islands in 4,000 miles of direction from there. Then they took the, one of these navigators on the ship, rain, doldrums, dark clouds, you couldn't see the sky at night, no way to know where you were. And whenever they asked, they'd, he'd say, oh, my island is there, and here's where we're headed. So the Hawaiians in the 70s decided they would start the voyaging tradition again. And they went to the far Marquesas and found a man named Mau, who was one of the last living navigators, who'd been trained in this lineage of shaman navigators. And Nainoa was one of the small group of people that went there to train. Um, and the training was, you know, when, when Mao was trained, he got seasick, so his grandfather tied his hands together with rope, threw him overboard of a little boat, and just towed him around for, you know, some weeks until he got used to being part of the ocean. <laughs> Later on in his training, he was, his testicles were tied to the bottom of the boat for 24 hours so that he could feel the waves. There are five levels of waves. The waves that bounce off the islands that are 500 or 1,000 miles away, the deep waves in the ocean, and get them in his body. Learn to read hundreds of stars, to watch the floating things from the, from the uh, seaweed and the birds, to look at the other levels of waves and so forth. So Nainoa went and did this training. And then they took the first big voyaging canoe, six, two 60-foot trees tied together with a... With a lashed together in, in a traditional way, um, and began to voyage the Pacific um, with some difficulties. I won't go into all the stories, but when they finally got to Tahiti, um, half the population of the island came out to greet them as if they were gods because they were showing what this beautiful culture had known, the capacity of 
uh, sailing the ocean without a single instrument and knowing where you were always. And Nainoa sits like a yogi, and now he's trained his successors, this young Hawaiian woman. Um, and you don't sleep for the whole month or two of the voyage. You sit in a kind of yogic meditation, and you always know where you are. But they decided to do the hardest of all sail, which was to Easter Island, which is the Rapa Nui, which is the farthest, most remote island in all of the South Pacific, through the doldrums, through rain, gray skies, and almost getting to that area, Nainoa fell asleep. And he woke up, and it was the middle of the night, and he realized he'd fallen asleep, and he didn't know where he was. And he didn't want to tell anyone that he didn't know where he was, because they'd been out for six weeks, <laughs> sails and paddling, and this, you know, and he didn't know where he was. So he just sat, not knowing, for a couple of days, letting them sail. And then in the night, he heard Mao, his teacher's voice, say, when you don't know where you are, it's like what Wes's song was, he said, stop and do a very deep meditation and realize where you really are. And he said, so I just let everything go and realize that I was in the center of the universe, that the boat was the center of the galaxy. We're always in the center. Where are you? Here? Now? And he said, all of a sudden I came at rest. I knew what my teacher meant. I was just where I was. He said, and then if you are still lost, he said, with your heart and your imagination, raise the islands out of the ocean. He said, I didn't quite know what he meant by that, but there I am sitting and realizing now it's dark and I'm in the middle of the universe and what to do, just be. And then there was a break in the clouds, the moon came out and it showed on the horizon the peak of this island, which was Rapa Nui. And he said, it's as if when I was ready, the island, the island appeared for me. Um, and he said, my teacher could do that at will. You know, we, we'd be out somewhere and he'd say, all right, this is where we're going and things would just appear. He said, I don't know how he did that, but I've come to trust that I'm part of something so huge, so much bigger than anything that I could possibly imagine with my little brain, that when we go out, imagine going out for two months through the storms in a, you know, double-held canoe, basically, to cross the Pacific, I've come to trust that I am part of something so wondrous and mysterious and enormous. And it's not me who's taking care of it. My job is to become in harmony with this and let my love, my voice, my connection, my vision come out of that. So, one day, when I was walking through the Stanford University campus, this is from Pan, Pran Peavy, who is another great activist. Her work a lot was the Clean Up the Ganges project. She worked with the Mahant of um, Varanasi, of the Tulsi Temple, to, to do this whole project to clean up the Ganges River. I was walking through the Stanford University campus with a friend when I saw a crowd of people with cameras and video equipment on a little hillside. They were clustered around a pair of chimpanzees, a male running loose, and a female on a chain about 25 feet long, a light chain. It turned out the male was from Marine World Africa, right? And the female was being studied for something at Stanford, and who I thought were the spectators were actually scientists and publicity people trying to get them to mate. The male was eager, you know how they can be. He grunted and grabbed the female's chain and tugged. She whimpered and backed away. He pulled again, she pulled back. Watching the chimps' faces, I began to feel sympathy for the female. Suddenly, the female chimp yanked her chain out of the male's grasp, and to my amazement, she walked through the crowd straight over to me, took my hand, and led me across the circle to the only other two women in the crowd, and joined hands with them. And now the four of us stood together in a circle. I remember the feeling of that rough palm against mine. The little chimp had recognized us and reached out across all the years of evolution to form her own women's support group. Okay. So, you know, we're part of something 
and that something which is life, which is huge and mysterious and beautiful, is asking of you to participate in life. And it's asking you all the time. You know, you may not always pick up the phone or answer, you know, your text or whatever it is. Um, this from Alison Luderman, poet in, in uh, Oakland. She describes, you know, the generosity of life. She said, in the same way, sun drapes a buttered scarf across your face, rose opens herself to your glance, and rain shares its divine melancholy. The whole world keeps whispering or shouting to you, nibbling your ear like a neglected lover. And saying, here we are on this amazing earth, connected with the creatures and the animals and the atmosphere and uh, the food chains and the corporations and uh, um, we saw these white freshwater dolphins in the Irrawaddy River in March when we were traveling in Burma. The, the dolphins of the world who were swimming along with us and Trudy, my partner, wanted to jump off the boat and, the dolph- and swim along with the dolphins because she does that, you know, in other places. But I said, the Irrawaddy is not the right place to do this right now. It was pretty, lots of other boat traffic and things like that. But we're part of this web. Everybody knows it in some way. And then the question is, well, what do we do? How do we take the, the spirit and the song and the vision and the science and so forth from this day? And bring it each in our own way into action. I would like to use the image of planting seeds, that you don't make the fields, you don't make the rain and so forth, but you carry seeds in your heart. And the seeds are really the seeds of your best intentions and the seeds of your actions. And as uh, Henry David Thoreau said, Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me you have a seed there to plant, and I am prepared to expect wonders. And so it's not given to you to hold the world or change. It's not your responsibility. That would be pretty egotistical. Okay, I'm going to do it. But it is given to you to plant beautiful and amazing seeds and to join with others, and to water them, and to amend the soil, and so forth, each in your own way. Um, And it's going to take a while. I'm sorry to say, the earth, you know, it changes slowly. Um, My friend, our friend, James and Jane and others know this uh, fellow named Ari Ratana, who is the best most famous community organizer in Asia, started the Sarbodia movement in Sri Lanka, that eventually spread to half the villages or more in the country. And when the Norwegians were broking, brokering a peace treaty there, um, Ari called all his people together to Anuradhapur, the great ancient temple there, to talk about how to make peace. 650,000 people came, and this is a country of only 18 million people. A quite extraordinary being. He stood up there, and he said, it took us 500 years to get into this civil war, this mess. 400 years of British colonial oppression, 500 years of conflict between the Muslims and the Buddhists and the Hindus, 200 years of disparity between the rich, wet parts and the poor, dry parts of the island. So the Buddha teaches us that things arise according to causes and conditions. If we wish this to change, we will have to change the causes and conditions. Therefore, I offer you the Sarvodhya 500-year peace plan. Right? Five years of ceasefire, 10 years of rebuilding roads and schools, 25 years to learn each other's language and religion, 50 years of an economic plan to bring harmony between the rich and the poor parts of the island, and in 100 years we'll have a council and we'll sit down and we'll say, hmm, 20%, how we're doing? Are we, have, do, are we on the right track? And then we'll do it again for the next 100 and the next 100. And maybe in He said, if we pursue it, not maybe, if we plant these seeds in 500 years, we will have the island of peace that we dream of. Now, I got to tell this story to the Dalai Lama when I was doing some teaching at part of an event with him, and having the Dalai Lama sit there when you do teaching is actually a very cool thing, you know. (laughs) And I told this story, and he was grinning because he's in the same predicament that you are. He's got Tibet, and it's 50 years of Chinese uh, military oppression and the loss of temples and cultures and 
and all those things. And he said they've, talking about anger and, and the suffering, he said they've, they've taken our sacred texts, they've burned our temples, they've taken our ability to, to um, practice our religion and rituals, they've taken so much from us. Why should I let them take my happiness? And then he laughed. You understand that no one can take away your joy. No one can take that part of your heart from you. So I got to tell this story to the Dalai Lama. And then the passage from Thomas Merton, where he writes to an activist and says, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no results at all, if not at times perhaps bringing about its opposite. As you get used to this, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, and the truth of the work itself. And so you set an intention in your heart, you align yourself with what the earth asks of you because you are of the earth, you are the earth, and you plant your seeds. And for some it will be demonstrating and for some it will be teaching kids in a preschool how to make a garden and raising conscious children and running a conscious business. And, you know, for some it will be teaching um, not only English to immigrants, but really making immigrants understand that they too are part of the web of the world that's welcome. You know, or tending the animals and letting them know that you love them, that they're part of you, that we, we exist with the, with the animal world. In fact, we are the animal world. And it's, it's kind of this a delusion to think somehow that we're different from all this. And so you have one foot in the trees and the soil uh, of the earth and the other foot in eternity. Because the question is not the future of the earth or the future of humanity, but it is the presence of something greater, of, the, of eternity itself. Um, and that means somehow that in order to do this work, to not feel guilty, as Gary says, but to do it out of love, requires that you carry first, that you set an inner intention that's really beautiful, maybe something you can't possibly do, but you set it as the vision your bodhisattva vow, um, you act on it, you plant your seeds, and here's the secret. It's a summary of the Bhagavad Gita and you get your $45 worth today or whatever you paid or something. <laughs> this is the secret. The secret is to act well without attachment to the fruits of the actions because it's not given to you to determine how it's going to come out. But what's given to you is to act beautifully and bravely and mercifully and to love. And if you do that, all kinds of things. And the elephants will be cheering you and the dolphins will be swimming with you and the chimpanzees will take your hand and say, come on, baby, let's do more of this. The earth will be with you because the earth wants this as well. You know, and you can begin to trust this. So I'm supposed to teach a meditation and we don't have all that much time. Um, let me think for a second. Anything else that I want to say? Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to read you one little thing, then we'll do our do our meditation. Um, and it's one of my favorite poems from uh, Diane Ackerman, who's also a good friend. And when I think about people making a bodhisattva vow, I think Donald and David Loy talked about the bodhisattva vow, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all, and so forth. Of course, it's very complicated, because if you decide to save like the sentient beings in your family, they don't necessarily want to be saved by you. <laughs> And then you realize that saving sentient beings means something a little different than your ideas about how they're supposed to be. So this is Diane Ackerman, her version of the, what I call her version of the Bodhisattva vow, saying if you were to have prayer in the schools, here's maybe a morning prayer that kids could, kids could make. In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, 
I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, and an architect of peace. And so in the meditation, which we'll do now, one of the things I'll ask is if you were to make a little vow, make your own bodhisattva vow um, from today, Uh, what would it be? What would the seeds be? And sometimes it's just a simple, I vow to be kind to every being I encounter. You know, it can be that simple. Um, But it might be something else. And only you can know. It's sort of setting the compass of your heart. So let your eyes close gently. And come back just to feel your breath, breathing. The wind that was carried to you that dusted the peaks of Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa and swept across the Pacific to your breath that you take in right now. Of course, it also was the breath of the person sitting next to you a few seconds ago. You don't even have to kiss them. They give you your breath, you know. It's true. And uh, it's the breath of the raccoons that are in the trees and the deer around us and the earthworms and the sparrows. And you let your life breath breathe in and out and bring your attention gently to the area of your heart. And feel that you've been given life. You've been given this amazing incarnation, this gift of being alive. And sometimes it feels small and you get identified with unworthiness and grief and fear and attachments. But also it's possible to feel the radiance of life given to you that breathes itself and moves. And in this there's a deep peace and natural love. And imagine as you sit now that this love, which is what was born into you, and tenderness and care that's born into every newborn child, fills your body, all the cells of your body, with life force and healing and care. And then imagine somehow that you could expand so that your head poked up from the ceiling and your body got bigger and bigger and you were bigger than this whole building and all the beings inside here, breathing and meditating, they were all inside you. You become this great vast being who holds spirit rock in your body. And all their human experiences are breathing and thinking and feelings. And you let yourself get bigger and bigger. Imagine, because identity is so mysterious that you can fill not just the room, but float up in the sky and be enormous. As if you float over the Bay Area and all of California is now down there, but part of this huge body, you're becoming bigger and bigger. And in there is humanity, the human condition of joy and desire and loneliness and caring and violence and the love of parents for their children and failure and creativity and all the animals, the bay and the ocean, all that is in you. You're now this vast being and you get bigger and bigger as if you're so big that the whole earth is there in front of you and you could hold it in your lap. You realize, no, it's part of you. You're as big as the solar system. And you expand like the galaxies, huge. And then even the little earth is just there, a blue-green ball deep within you, with all its dreams and hopes, and hundreds of thousands of millions of years of life. 
and you rest in the vastness that is silent and peaceful and everything that exists is all within you. You are the ancient one. Everything that ever is or was or will be, all time, the dance of the universe is within you. And it's silent and peaceful, no boundaries, beyond form. And gently you begin to collect yourself and gently the vastness starts to collect and get smaller and slowly you feel the galaxies and the solar system and the earth floating within you with all the cities and forests and oceans. Now you look and see the earth and the beings on it and realize you are being given the gift of incarnation to be a little part of the whole and yet at the same time to have to have one foot in the, your human body and another in eternity itself, in the timeless. And you can do something beautiful with the life you've been given. You can tend this earth. You can care for all beings, not out of guilt, as Gary says, but out of love and compassion, out of care. For they're all part of you. And before you come back to your small self to the limited and beautiful and wonderful incarnation that you've given to given in this body. As you look at this earth from this vast perspective, let yourself listen for your own bodhisattva vow or your own highest intention. What would it be that on this day you might say, this is the direction of my heart. What is the spirit? And what are the, the energy and the vision that you want to carry from this day? And how can you carry it beautifully? In your own form, as a guardian of nature, a healer of misery, a messenger of wonder, an architect of peace. And as you vision now coming back to this body and incarnation, let the heart fill with compassion for all the worries and struggles that you and others carry. And let there come an understanding in this tenderness, heart filled with tenderness of how to navigate the joys and sorrows, the gain and loss, the praise and blame, the birth and death. This is human incarnation. This is this earth. How to carry yourself so beautifully and plant the best of seeds. And as you envision, feel what your body would be like to carry the spirit of awakening. And sense what the quality of your heart will be as you carry this spirit of awakening and care. And as you get ready to re-inhabit this human life with now wisdom 
and the vows of what you'll do and a deep sense of tenderness. As you come back, you realize that in your lap, the bodhisattvas and Buddhas, the Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion, has left you a gift. And you can picture or imagine that there's a gift in your lap, which is a clear symbol of just what you need to carry you into this work of loving and serving the earth most skillfully. And you open this gift from the goddess of compassion, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. It's the perfect thing that you need to keep this sense of peace and the beautiful seeds and the action you'll take. And let yourself unwrap it, picture it, imagine it, vision it any way you can. And if it's not clear, hold it up in your hands to the sunlight. This is the gift, the clear symbol of just what you need as you leave the temple back to the marketplace. And finally, coming back to sense yourself seated here now with this gift and with your heart's intention. Let there be loving and compassionate awareness of this life you've been given. Think of the people that care about you the most, how they love you and want the best for you. You are a daughter or a son of this earth. You are wanted here. And let the love in, because compassion and love are never complete unless they include the one seated right here on your own cushion. Then the circle is complete and you become an expression of that love. Fill yourself with that love. Let it bless you. Let it touch all the cells of your body, every breath and heartbeat. Take your gift. Remember your vows or your sacred intention. Most of all, remember that you can dance. blessing, intention, sacred green cords in a moment. Um, think of how to do it. Yeah. Why don't we pass them around, James? So um, as these cords get passed around, don't tie them on yet. Just hold them and pass them to other people near you. And you may have seen people wearing blessing or protection cords. There's red ones and golden ones. And while they're passed out, um, I'm going to talk about them a tiny bit. In, throughout Buddhist Asia, from all the way from you know, the, what were the Buddhist countries of Afghanistan and Pakistan and India and all the way across Southeast Asia through China and Japan, the thread, the sacred thread, is used as a symbol of our interbeing and interconnectedness. And it's part of all kinds of rituals of blessing and care. Often they're colored red. I got this one from the Dalai Lama. Or sometimes they're a golden color. The reason is that they're considered one thread from the robe of a monk or a nun that you wear in the marketplace. It's basically remembering that these are, this is your true nature. 
you're a monk or a nun in drag, basically, out there in the marketplace. Um, and you have to remember that your true home is the temple and that your vows and intention that you set is re- really speaks from and to who you, who you are in the deepest and most beautiful way. Now these sacred threads, if you go to India and you meet a Brahmin priest, they'll wear a white thread or, around their body for the whole of their adult life to show that they're living within the thread that takes every experience, every being, everything that they touch as part of the divine, as part of what's holy. Um, when I first did this protection blessing cord ceremony with Chogit Lama Chogyam Trimba Rinpoche years ago, somebody said, well, what exactly does this protect you from? And he said, why, uh, yourself, of course, is the main... <laughs> So to create these cords, we're actually going to have to ta- take them um, and put some knots in the cord um, as a way to, for them to really bless you. Um, and the first knot is the knot of refuge. Um, so if you hold your cord up and reflect on what is the deepest refuge you can take, the refuge that will carry you and support you in the... Buddhist tradition, sometimes it's the refuge in the Buddha and in all awakened beings, the possibility of awakening, to see the Buddha nature in every being. Refuge in Dharma, in what's true, speaking true and acting from the truth. Refuge in Sangha, in the Sangha of community of all those who are awakening together. Um, Many meanings for Sangha, the ordained Sangha, the Sangha of um, awakened ones. But your refuge could also be the refuge in life itself, in Mother Earth, in Pachamama. The refuge could be in the refuge of the community who are all who are serving life. And you'd think for a moment, what is the refuge that I turn to for support when things are hard, that when I want to sit in council with the elephants or the dolphins, when I know that this is really where I go for my connection to all things. And knowing what your refuge is. And that it can support and carry you through anything. Take refuge and tie a knot in your cord that is a reminder that you are connected with this timeless, eternal refuge. Always there for you. And the second knot is the knot of compassion. Traditionally in the um, creation of a protection cord or even going into a temple or monastery, you would take the vows to refrain from killing or causing harm to living beings, to refrain from stealing or not taking that which doesn't belong to you, to refrain from being greedy and messing up the relations, the wise relations of the world um, of, of things by taking what you shouldn't. Um, to refrain from causing harm through speaking falsely or the misuse of speech. To refrain from causing harm through the misuse of intoxicants or misuse of sexuality. But underlying all of those is simply the heart's vow to move through this world out of compassion for yourself and other beings and not to cause harm, to let your life be one that affirms life. And so this is the knot of compassion. You can hold it up and reflect on what your own deep intention to not cause harm and to meet all beings, those who are joyful and those who are suffering, those who are causing suffering, those who are liberating beings from suffering, to meet every being with a tender heart, especially yourself, to be the carrier of compassion. And when you're ready to take the intention or the vow of non-harming, tie the second knot in your cord. 
And now it's almost fully activated, but not quite. The third knot is the knot of that bodhisattva vow, that intention, when you were coming back to this body, in this planet, in this life, and you saw, what is it that I would take to set the compass of my heart? And you each have made in yourself some, or envisioned, of an intention, a vow, a sacred direction. Touched by what you've seen today, by what moved you, but what reminded you who you are, what inspired you. And now holding the cord for the third and the last knot. Tie into it your sacred intention. that you might not forget, but that you might carry it beautifully from this place and this day. And now it is fully activated. If you want to wear it around your neck, you can put it around your neck. Don't tie it on yet and let two ends hang down. If you want to wear it around your wrist, or your ankle for that matter, if you're very hip, whatever. Um, wrap it around three times and let the two ends hang down. And then, before you do anything else to it, I'm going to ask that you, in a moment, that you turn to a person sitting near you. And before you tie on their blessing cord, and, and when you tie it, you really give them a little bit of a silent blessing, they have to tell you what it is that, that their vow was that they made, because giving it word and saying it out loud brings it more alive on this earth and in your being, in your consciousness. And then before they tie yours on, you get to tell them what your vow, what your sacred intention was. Um, and then you get to tie these together, and then we have some little celebration to end. So turn to someone, find a partner, Whoever's near you, this is not dating, remember. This is just, you know. And if there isn't two people, it could be three. What? Um, no, you tell the third knot. The, the story you're telling is of the third knot of your, of your main intention from, from the day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.